0: everyone. Welcome to Selected Essays, a podcast series from The Point magazine about essays you should read but probably haven't. Each episode, we'll be talking with writers about an essay that's influenced one of their own. My name is Jess Woboda, and I'm here with my co-host, Zach Vine.
1: We're excited to have Adam Schatz on the podcast this week. Adam is the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and a contributor to the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review of Books, and The New Yorker. Last month, Verso published Adam's new book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination, which gathers a series of intellectual portraits of great thinkers and writers such as Claude levi strauss Chester Himes, Jacques Derrida, Huad Ajami, and Edward Said. For this episode, we talk to Adam about James Baldwin's essay, Alas, Poor Richard, which is about his fraught relationship with the novelist Richard Wright and was written a year after Wright died from a heart attack in 1960. We also talked to Adam about his essay on Wright in the new book, which synthesizes a range of material about Wright's fiction and political life, and is a wonderful introduction to his work.
0: We hope you'll enjoy this episode and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, comments, or anything else, send an email to at com. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Well, Adam, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, and before we, we dive in, we were wondering if we could just have you tell us a little bit about what the essay um, is about, and if there's anything noteworthy that's going on in Baldwin's life when he was writing it.
2: Sure. And thank you for having me. Uh, this essay, Alas, Poor Richard, is Baldwin's reflection on Richard Wright and his his relationship with Richard Wright, which was a mentorship, not quite a friendship, and or eventually an, an estranged relationship. Uh, and it was written in three parts. The essay is a triptych of, of three different pieces, um, published in Reporter magazine, in uh, Encounter, uh, and finally in Nobody Knows My Name, his second essay collection. So the last part, um, was not previously published. And I think it's notable that there are these three attempts to, um, settle accounts, uh, with Richard Wright, who was, you know, the most important black American writer, um, of his, of his time and who, um, you know, was a powerful force in Baldwin's imagination, almost for a time, uh, a kind of surrogate father, uh, James Baldwin uh, met Richard Wright for the first time in 1944. Um, It was about a year after the death of his own father, um, a a preacher with whom he had a kind of love-hate relationship. And he'd only recently learned that uh, his father, his late father was not his biological father. And so he was looking for for, uh, a kind of authority figure Um, beginning to think of himself uh, as a writer. He was working on an early draft of his first novel, very autobiographical novel, uh, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And he went to meet Richard Wright at his home in Brooklyn, where Wright was living with his wife, Ellen, a Jewish communist and their infant daughter, Julia. And he went there and Wright uh, greeted him with what Baldwin remembered was a a uh, mockingly a conspiratorial smile. And Wright poured him bourbon. Uh, and James Baldwin uh, was not in the habit of drinking bourbon and found himself t- telling Wright much more about his novel uh, than he intended to. And Wright helped him to obtain this uh, Eugene F. Saxton grant of $500, which enabled uh, Baldwin to pursue his work on the novel. But, you know, when they met again, Um, in Paris a few years later, uh, when Wright uh, and Baldwin were both living there, both um, become expatriates, their relationship uh, had changed considerably. Uh, Baldwin uh, had published his first piece in Paris in in, in an expat magazine called Zero, and the piece was called Everybody's Protest Novel. And this was a piece that was largely about Harriet Beecher Stowe, but it included well, tacked on at the end, was a, uh, a very provocative critique of Wright's 1940 novel, Native Son. And he uh, basically characterized that novel as uh, a latter-day Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, which uh, reduced uh, Black humanity to, uh, to its categorization. And he even pictured Wright and Harriet Beecher Stowe locked in this uh, this this timeless, deadly uh, embrace with uh, with Harriet Beecher Stowe, Stowe hurling uh, exhortations and 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 Wright uh, uh, shouting invective. And Wright was very hurt because he felt that uh, uh, Baldwin owed a lot to him; that he'd been a good mentor. And he didn't understand why he was suddenly uh, the object of, um, of, of Baldwin's uh, critical dissection. And uh, Baldwin walked into uh, the Brasserie Lip um, on Paris's left bank, and Wright was in there. This was the day that the article was published in uh, 1949. And Wright uh, asked Baldwin to come to his table. Baldwin did. And Wright uh, accused him of not only betraying him, but of attempting to destroy him, and I mean, Baldwin writes in "Alas, Poor Richard" that it never occurred to him that he could even uh, that he could that he could ever destroy someone of Richard Wright's stature. So you know this this is a piece very much about the sometimes torturous relationship between between writer um, uh, and protege. But of course, it was written some eleven years or twelve years um, after that encounter. Um, and, and at the time that, uh, James Baldwin published this essay, he was now, um, you know, an illustrious writer in his own right. Uh, he'd published two novels, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain and Giovanni's Room. He was, uh, a celebrated essayist for, uh, his book, uh, Notes of a Native Son. He was the most famous black writer, black American writer of, of his time. Um, and, you know, Wright, by contrast, uh, had um, settled into a kind of um, dignitary status um, in Paris. He was close to the existentialist circle, um, but he was fairly a strange, fairly alienated guy and um, cut off from America. Uh, people weren't reading his recent novels. They, you know, really didn't measure up to his earlier work, although he was publishing some very interesting journalism, which we can talk about later. And so um, when Richard Wright died in 1960, he left this void. And James Baldwin, I think, uh, felt that he couldn't not write about Richard Wright, about this man who had helped to form him. And, uh, and so he sat down three times to write about him and then put these pieces together in Alas, Poor Richard.
1: Could we look at the first paragraph and have you uh, read it for us?
2: Sure. So the first part of this triptych is called Eight Men, um, which uh, is a reference to the title of Richard Wright's posthumous collection of stories, Eight Men. And one of the really interesting things uh, about this this essay is that Baldwin is uh, revising his own uh, understanding of Richard Wright's work and developing a much more sympathetic and penetrating um, understanding of what Richard Wright's actual themes were. Um, uh, he doesn't recant what he said earlier in everybody's protest novel, but, but you can tell that that Baldwin is, you know, reconsidering uh, uh, the argument in which he essentially slayed Richard Wright. Um, he writes, Unless a writer is extremely old when he dies, in which case he's probably become a neglected institution, his death must always seem untimely. This is because a real writer is always shifting and changing and searching. The world has many labels for him, of which the most treacherous is the label of success. But the man behind the label knows defeat far more intimately than he knows triumph. He can never be absolutely certain that he has achieved his intention.
1: So why do you think Baldwin starts the essay there? Is he, is he saying that success was a, a curse for Wright? Um, what is he kind of suggesting and setting out at the very beginning?
2: Wright's success had become something of a curse for him. On the one hand, it had opened doors. It had allowed him to, um, to move to France with his family. Um, at the invitation of the French government. The original invitation, I believe, came from Claude Lévi-Strauss, and he visited France in 1946, really liked it, and then came back in 1947. He and Ellen Wright um, had had uh, terrible problems uh, in the United States, um, even in, I, sh- I shouldn't perhaps I shouldn't say even in New York, but also in New York City, where they could not um, buy a house together under their own name because they were a mixed couple. Um, but this success, I think in Baldwin's view, had led um, Wright to not just to expatriate himself, but to cut himself off to some extent from, um, from his true literary subject in America and to forge alliances with uh, French intellectuals like Sartre and, and, and Beauvoir and the whole Tom Modern circle. Who, in in Baldwin's estimation, uh, had really much less interest in people uh, than in ideas, and and writes uh, the novels that Wright uh, published uh, when he was living in France uh, suffered from that same defect. They were um, uh, they were kind of cerebral confections that were not particularly grounded in lived experience. Um, uh, it, it was as if Wright wanted to reinvent himself as an existential novelist. Now, I happen to think that some of those novels are interesting, but but I think um, any uh, uh, fair appraisal would lead one to the conclusion that they they, they do not um, rate as highly as works like Native Son or his first short story collection um, or uh, his his memoir, which I think is one of the great works of American literature, Black Boy. Um, and my guess too, is that Baldwin is thinking perhaps about his own success and, and thinking about how he is going to forge his next step. There's a point in, uh, the first section of this essay where he writes that, uh, violence has tended to fill the space where sex should be, um, in novels by black Americans. And, uh, as it happens, Baldwin was writing his great sex novel, um, another country. Um, it's clear that, that Baldwin is, you know, thinking about, uh, his own work, his own understanding of the writer's vocation, um, in relationship, um, uh, to Richard Wright. Uh, you know, this is, uh, this is one of the great self and other essays in my view.
0: So I noticed that Baldwin doesn't even mention Wright by name until the third paragraph. Why? What kind of foundation is Baldwin laying for his essay in these opening paragraphs?
2: Well, I do think he's suggesting in the, in the opening paragraphs that the figure of the writer, and in this case, Richard Wright, while the writer is alive, stands in between the reader um, and the reader's understanding of the work. And I think that he's almost, I think what he's saying Is that Richard Wright, as a man, as a black man who had survived to tell the tale, stood in between Baldwin and his understanding of what Richard Wright's work was ultimately about? Um, As I said in Everybody's Protest Novel, um, he had characterized um, not just sorry in 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 um, in Everybody's Protest Novel, but also. Um, In a subsequent essay that he published uh, a year or so later, um, Many Thousands Gone, which appeared in Partisan Review, um, he put forward uh, a pretty lacerating critique of Richard Wright as a writer guided uh, by protest, a writer for whom literature was protest. And Baldwin, um, although he flirted uh, with, uh, with Trotskyism when he was a teenager, uh, was never unlike Richard Wright, a member of the communist party. You know, the communist party formed Richard Wright. You can't really understand Richard Wright's work, uh, without, um, understanding his relationship to the communist party in the 1930s. He was one of the communist party's prized intellectuals, prized black intellectuals. Um, and even after he left the party, uh, he continued in some, in, in many ways, to think of himself as a protest writer, um, although I think his his understanding of what protest writing was 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 different from Baldwin's. Baldwin, on the other hand, uh, was very much an aesthete. Um, you know, his two greatest influences were the King James Bible and Henry James. He later added a third, the blues, which was always there, although we emphasized it more um, uh, in you know in his later work. Um, James Baldwin was also gay and 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 I think, you know, Baldwin's sexuality is crucial to an understanding of his work. Richard Wright, I think, um, was in some ways mystified by Baldwin's sexuality and in one case, um, characterized his prose in a way that was implicitly homophobic. So I think that um, in those initial graphs, Baldwin is essentially confessing to the fact that, In 1949, when he published Everybody's Protest Novel, he could only see Wright. He really couldn't see Wright's writing.
0: So later in the essay, Baldwin expresses that he wants to turn to Wright and suggests that they talk as if white people are not listening. So who is the imagined audience for this essay, and how does it shape the way Baldwin writes it?
2: you know my my sense of, of of passages like this is that you know Wright was being sorry that my my sense of passages like this is that Baldwin was being somewhat mocking of Wright's efforts to remain politically relevant um from his from what was a comfortable uh, exile in paris and you know much of this essay is um uh, de- devoted I think to a theme that comes up a lot in Baldwin's work, which is you know what you know he called the price of the ticket, you know, what the, the, the costs of of acceptance and success. And you know his judgment is that um is that is that Wright ended up paying uh, too high a price that Wright had exchanged of uh, uh one illusion for another I, I can find the passage actually hold on just I'll I'll rephrase that. In the first section of The Last Poor Richard, uh, Baldwin writes that Wright was fond of referring to Paris as the city of refuge. That's a reference to an essay that Wright um, wrote but did not publish, actually, um, when he first arrived, when he first settled in Paris called I Choose Exile. He was fond of referring to Paris as the city of refuge, which it certainly was. God knows for the likes of us but it was not a city of refuge for the French, still less for anyone belonging to France. It's an allusion to the colonies. And it would not have been a city of refuge for us if we had not been armed with American passports. It did not seem worthwhile to me to have fled the native fantasy only to embrace a foreign one. And, and I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a fairly, you know, uh, cutting appraisal of, of right. and, in my view, not not entirely a fair one, um, but it's probably an authentic reconstruction of how Baldwin and some younger black writers felt when they looked uh at Wright, um being embraced by the whole left bank circle of of Les temps moderne. And Wright was someone who by then uh had made it and, you know, as you know Baldwin puts it somewhat scathingly, um, had was living like a white man in Paris. Now, I mean, the reason that I think that it's a somewhat unfair judgment is that in fact, um, in the, uh, in Paris, uh, Richard Wright took part in the founding of the Pan-African Journal, the Negritude Journal, uh, Présence Africaine with Alion Diop, um, and others, Aimé Césaire. Um, uh, he, uh, launched the first uh, Black writer, Black Writers and Artists Conference in 1956, which Baldwin attended and reported on in his piece, Princes and Powers. Um, and he also began to travel to, you know, what we now call the Global South, the deco- you know, the, a world which was in the midst of um, rebellions against colonialism and published uh, two books on the subject, which uh, still bear rereading. So uh, while Wright was quite cautious when it came to the war in algeria um he was fairly outspoken um and quite uh perceptive and yet at the same time saying that he has a debt in a sense to the damage that he caused that um he had to he had to kill right to become james baldwin
1: Reading the essay, there there were moments for me though where I found it almost hard to believe that Baldwin actually did revere Wright as a god or as this kind of father figure as he presents him. And I'm wondering if there's any chance that that is a kind of um, it's a construction, a yeah, yeah. fiction. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that. I, th-
2: I think that I think that's possible. I think that's possible. I mean, um, it's occurred to me as well that. Um, that Baldwin's account of this early meeting um, may be, uh, you know, as, as you were suggesting, a kind of essayistic uh, construction. Um, the biographical evidence suggests that he did revere Wright. Um, question is, did he revere Wright because he revered the work? We know that he admired Black Boy, but did he revere the work? Or did he rather revere the fact that Wright had made it? And I think that the latter is probably the more powerful fact. Wright was someone who um, had survived um, uh, an experience, that, uh, an experience of, of, of racism and terror that was unlike anything that Baldwin himself had known. Remember, Richard Wright is a, uh, he's not like Baldwin. He's not someone who grew up in Harlem. He's a refugee from the South. Um, and uh, he had seen things and heard of things um, that uh, Baldwin, of course, had learned about, but had never himself witnessed. Um, he knew of people who were lynched, who had who had um, who had uh, lost their lives to what I think at one point he calls the uh, the white death. Um, and he had made himself um, into a writer. Um, and I mean, re- remember that Native Son was a book of the month club choice. Um, that's no small achievement. Now, of course, the price that Richard Wright had to pay for becoming a book of the month club author, this was a price that Baldwin himself was not aware of at the time, was that key passages um, in Native Son uh, were uh, deleted. And these were passages, I think, that would have given Baldwin a very a much different um, picture of what Wright's intentions were, because they involved um, the sexual desire, the current of desire between uh, Bigger Thomas and uh, the white woman he kills. Uh, those were not in the original edition. And so uh, Bigger Thomas ends up seeming like a kind of a, a monster without motive, um, which is one reason, of course, why, why Baldwin um, objected to uh, the depiction of Bigger Th- Thomas in, uh, in Native Son. But I, I agree. I think that there's there's a case to be made um, that uh, he's amplifying his uh, reverence uh, for Wright for the for the for the for the purposes um, of, of, of this essay. Um, you know, another, <clears throat> I think, um, interesting aspect of the uh, Wright-Baldwin um, rivalry as it were, although it's really a rivalry only on one side because, you know, Wright regarded Baldwin as a, as an ungrateful young upstart. He did not regard Baldwin as a competitor. Um, Baldwin uh, raged against uh, Wright's, what he took to be Wright's narrow protest centered conception of the novel. But for one thing, he admits in this essay that the setting of of Wright's uh, fiction is not really the South. It's not really the South Side of Chicago. It's the desolation of the human heart. That these that that these these are works of profound human emotion, and that they can't really under be understood in narrow protest terms. And that even that even if Wright had understood himself to be a protest writer, some of his effects. Clearly, um, some of his, his effects, um, eluded him, you know, and a a writer is only aware of so many of his or her intentions. Um, furthermore, Baldwin, uh, ends up for the most part, writing novels that are very much in the vein of protest fiction. His prose style is obviously very different from Wright's. Wright published in a kind of um, 30s style, social realist, staccato prose uh, that would never be mistaken for uh, the kind of Jamesian sentences of of, of James Baldwin. Um, But there is not a novel that James Baldwin published after Giovanni's Room, which is not a work. Of protest um, against uh, the distorting impact of racism in the lives of both black and white people in America. And, um, you know, this, the piece that Baldwin wrote in 1949 appeared just a few years after the death of a very close friend of his, young black man, um, whom Baldwin was in love with. I don't think they were lovers, but Baldwin was in love with this man, Eugene Worth. Eugene Worth um, threw himself from the George Washington Bridge um, in the mid-40s. Baldwin um, writes somewhere that uh, Worth's Worth's death was what led him to uh, leave the States uh, for France. He worried that um, if he stuck around, he'd end up like Eugene Worth or he might kill someone. And um, Eugene Worth later inspires um, the character of um, Rufus Scott, the uh, the doomed uh, jazz musician in another country who takes up with um, somewhat implausibly with a with a, uh, a white woman from the south um, and they have this torrid affair and anyway uh, Rufus Scott ends up killing himself and that's the setting for the the uh, sort of emotive setting for the rest of the novel uh, but that first section of the novel which is some seventy or eighty pages. Um, reads, frankly, like protest, like a protest novel, you know, Rufus Scott is as much a symbol of the horror of American racism as bigger Thomas is. So, you know, sometimes, you know, Justice Wright uh, was unaware, perhaps, that his work um, was about something larger than the American Race problem, so so to speak, as it was called then. Although I think Wright actually had much greater ambition. I mean, I I do think Wright saw himself as as an heir of writers like Dostoevsky. But just as Wright's work has to be understood beyond protest, so Baldwin's essay has to be understood in relation to protest. And 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 of course today that's that's hardly a controversial statement. I mean, uh, James Baldwin owes his current celebrity. Um, to his, this voice of prophetic criticism. Um, I think that people who encounter Baldwin for the first time, when they watch a film uh, like Raul Peck's um, I'm Not Your Negro, would be rather shocked to learn that Baldwin um, uh, had it in for protest fiction. You would think that's what, that's all that Baldwin was about. But Baldwin, like Wright, was, you know, highly contradictory. I mean, he was a an artist of very deep and intimate and and pure um, aesthetic vision. And at the same time, he was someone who very much wanted to speak his truth about his experience as a black man. They had far more in common than they had, you know, in any case, I'll stop there. I'm going on for too long.
1: Listening to you compare their prose styles and then talk talking about Baldwin as a, as a writer of protest novels, it strikes me that in a lot of the essays and criticism about Baldwin and Wright together. There's just this kind of insistent focus on the interpersonal quarrel between them. And I'm curious why you think that is. Why the um, the attraction to the drama of the you know the conflict at outside the uh, brasserie leap or wherever you know it is in Paris at the time. Like why why do we focus on that um, interpersonal conflict as opposed to the the differences in their work?
2: I think there are a number of reasons. One, of course, is that people are drawn to these father-son, or for that matter, mother-daughter battles. Battles. I mean, why why are people gripped by succession? I mean, essentially, you know, it's a story of parents and children. Um, I think you know um, another reason is that um, it's easier to talk about. I mean, in, in retrospect, it becomes clear that. Baldwin and Wright didn't really have much of a relationship. They, they, they knew each other at a certain point. Baldwin, you know, looked up to Wright as a successful Black author, followed him to Paris, one could, one could argue. Um, then they had a rupture. And after that, their relations were um, very distanced. Um, Baldwin did not speak at uh, Richard Wright's funeral. In fact, I, I don't even think he attended it so um you know this is not a case of two writers who know each other intimately and and have a falling out um the relationship was much more alive in baldwin's imagination than it was in Wright's. but i think that it's easier to talk about than it is to talk um about the work i mean just think about people's relationship to baldwin's work today um on the one hand it's a, a remarkable fact that in the last uh, decade or so, uh, Baldwin has been essentially resurrected. I mean, this is—I think you know—this is wonderful, and we owe it, of course, to films like uh, Raoul Peck's um, uh, *I'm Not Your Negro*. Whatever you think of the film, and I, you know, it's a—it's a potent work, which is also, you know, a partial work an incomplete work—a work that really never, that hardly broaches the issue of Baldwin's sexuality, which, as I've said, I think is you know central to any understanding of Baldwin's writing. Still, um, we're in the midst of this Baldwin revival and sanctification of James Baldwin, but in some cases, it's either led away from his writing, or it's led to um, a, a kind of cramped interpretation of the writing, which is either based on uh, cherry-picked quotations, and and Baldwin, you know, is a treasure trove of quotations and aphorisms not to mention, uh, speeches that you can find on YouTube. Uh, no writer, I think, uh, uh rivaled, uh, Baldwin in his flair for public speaking. I mean, the only writer of that era who, who came close in the States was probably, uh, Norman Mailer and Norman Mailer was a clown by comparison. Uh, uh James Baldwin had a, had this, um, impeccable, uh, moral authority, um, when he spoke. So you have the quotes, you have the, you know, you have the, um, the YouTube speeches, and then you have this shift in focus from the searching and probing and often very ambivalent, uh, essays that he wrote in the late forties and throughout the 1950s, all the way up to, um, uh, uh, the fire next time, you know, the, uh, the peak, at the very peak of his powers, you know, when he essentially, you know, weds the uh, uh, the civil rights movement. um, A shift from that work to the Baldwin of No Name in the Street, published in 1972, which I think is a, a very fine piece of writing, not at quite the level of his earlier work, but the most important thing here, I think, for the purpose of our conversation is that no name in the street has a very um, has a very different tone and very different sensibility. It's much more bruised and battered and disillusioned and bleak. and it's almost as if Baldwin in 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 the space of less than a decade has gone from being a qualified, I mean, I'm I'm using terms that didn't exist then and I'm being somewhat facetious, but he's gone from being a qualified Afro optimist to being uh, a very seasoned Afro pessimist. Um and and the Baldwin we read about today is really the, the 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 more pessimistic, bleak um Baldwin who is who knows that um you know the uh the, the American horror is, you know, human made, but is unsure that humans can actually alter it and set the country on a different path. Um, and I think, but I think, you know, as, as, as welcome as this revival has been, it, it it has also led to uh, a, a somewhat oversimplified understanding of Baldwin's work and the way that that work reflects the journey of his life. And so I, to get back to your question about, about, about Baldwin and Wright, Baldwin has been sanctified. Richard Wright has been virtually forgotten. I mean, kids still, you know, if they're lucky, they'll read Black Boy or Native Son, but he's not read very much. And very few people are reading his books like White Man Listen or The Color Curtain, which is, uh, you know, a fascinating report from the Pendung Conference. They're not aware of, right, the journalist who, you know, was a precursor to the Granta journalism of the 1980s. So if you have one figure who's sanctified and the other who's forgotten, it's so much easier to get the kind of transatlantic Netflix version of an older Black writer and a younger Black writer, one exiting the scene, one entering the scene, feuding, right? I mean...
1: Do you feel like that's changing right now? Do you feel like there is a resurgence of interest in Wright, and not only marked by, you know, things like your essay, um, but, you know, there's um, a lot of interest now these days in existentialism again. And so I'm wondering if Wright's novels like The Outsider will come back into vogue in some way, or his work on colonialism. Do you think things are going to kind of turn in terms of... I
2: do think there are some signs of a a growing interest. I think that that one one example of that would be the republication of um i think it's the first full-length publication of his novella uh the man uh, who went underground um i do see a growing interest among scholars one of the i think one of the pioneers of of a you know let's hope let's hope it will be a, a richard wright uh, revival um is the the scholar paul gilroy who's probably best known for his book the black atlantic uh, he's written quite brilliantly um about richard wright and and i think that that you're onto something that the fascination of figures um like uh, simon de beauvoir um might end up rubbing off on 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 richard wright as well um You know, Wright's work, and I leave aside um, uh, Black Boy, because I think Black Boy is is an immediately accessible work and and really one of the most enchanting and powerful autobiographies that I know of. Wright's work is more difficult to access than Baldwin. And it's not simply because Wright's prose is less seductive than Baldwin's. Whose writing is whose writing is as seductive as Baldwin's anyway? I mean, not, there aren't many American essayists who can, who can, uh, who can equal him. Um, it's more difficult to access because I think in some ways it's more tethered to a certain period in American life, especially the, the depression years, the hungry thirties. Now it's quite possible that the revival of interest in that period you know, because of you know in, of economic precarity today, because of uh, 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 increasing interest in Marxism, that may also lead people back uh, to write. But um, when you read, write, and I do admire write, you don't have the same feeling that you do when you when you open *Notes of a Native Son*, or *Nobody Knows My Name*, uh, or a novel like Giovanni's Room, that the writer is speaking to you. And that, that's, I mean, very few writers can create that immediate intimacy of address that one finds in Baldwin's essays, um, which um, feel um, sort of seductively, I keep using that word, confessional, even when he's not really telling you much about himself. Baldwin doesn't really own up that much about himself. And some of the stories that he tells, he repeats in numerous essays. I think, to really get the novel, you know, it's, um, but nevertheless, there's some very strong writing in that book and how fascinating it is it that he even published a book like that. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's an utterly weird and surreal book.
0: You mentioned the intimacy of address, and I wanted to ask about the title of this essay, Alas, Poor Richard what do you make of the, alas, an expression of grief, pity, concern? Uh, Is Baldwin directing that at himself or at Wright or at both of them? And then how about the poor as well?
2: (laughs) It's a good question. And I I would agree with you that it's it's directed at himself, I think, to some degree, but I do think it's mostly directed at Wright. And I think that, um, and the reason I think that has to do with the, um, the conclusion of the piece. Um, it's a, it's a, and it's, and, and, and in this conclusion, he, he characterizes Richard Wright as a victim of a war and the, the, a victim of the war between whiteness and blackness. And, and he is essentially, he is historicizing Richard Wright. He's saying that Richard Wright was this remarkably brilliant, but ultimately tragic figure who reflects an era that is about to pass. I mean, I, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to read, the, read a short passage from the conclusion of that, of that essay. Please. So after characterizing Wright as one of the most illustrious victims of the war between blackness and whiteness, a man who, this is Baldwin, eventually found himself wandering in a no man's land between the black world and the white world. Baldwin writes, It is no longer important to be white, thank heaven. The white face is no longer invested with the power of this world, and it is devoutly to be hoped that it will soon no longer be important to be black. The experience of the American Negro, if it is ever faced and assessed, makes it possible to hope for such a reconciliation. The hope and effect of this fusion in the breast of the american negro is one of the few hopes we have of surviving the wilderness which lies before us now so i do think that the alas poor is mostly directed at Wright. i mean he's i guess you could say that he's consigning richard wright to a history which he has decided is coming to an end now i I really i wonder what baldwin would have to say now of course because clearly we have not reached that point where whiteness has ceased to matter. And I think very few black writers, um, would imagine or hope for a time when, when, when being black would cease to matter. Um, uh, Baldwin is expressing, I think, an optimism that grows out of not just the civil rights movement in the States in which he'd become, you know, an increasingly influential participant, you know, with his friendships with, uh, Medgar Evers and, and Martin Luther King Jr. And, and his friendship with Malcolm X, but it also grows out of, uh, the excitement of decolonization in Africa. And, and it's notable that the last section of this piece Uh, Alas, poor Richard, um, uh, which he wrote for uh, Nobody Knows My Name. He takes up the question of Richard Wright's relations with Africans um, in France. Africans whose relationship to blackness, to their identity, is very different from that of black Americans. Africans who um, do not have the same kind of privileges. Um, that Black Americans um, were the beneficiary, beneficiaries of in Paris.
0: So you have this book of essays coming out. It's forthcoming, Writers and Missionaries. And you write in the introduction to that about being attracted to Sartre for his, quote, riveting portraits of other writers. And this book that you have coming out is this collection of portraits of writers. And I'm wondering... What I hope the <laughs> I guess we will leave it up to our listeners to decide.
2: <laughs> the last thing I want is to bore people, but you know, you never know.
0: <laughs> who knows? So, but what does a riveting portrait contain?
2: Well, you know, the, the the thing about those, you know, I I don't know whether you're familiar with 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 Sartre's essays on people like Paul Nizan, who was a classmate of his um at the École Normale Supérieure, or or, or of um, Merleau Ponty, who is a very close friend of his and a participant in the Existentialist movement, great philosopher. Or, or um, uh, uh, I mean, or his essays on you know his great his essay on genet or um, you know these these Sartre portraits, they really are quite remarkable. It's almost as if to write about these people, Sartre would place himself in their shoes and almost will himself to be them i mean he writes about them with this um this uh almost fictionalized and certainly magisterial authority so when he's writing about someone like nizon you feel that he has this this um magical access to nizon's determination his drive his his um his rebelliousness um and at the same time i mean in the case of nizan sartre is also um very aware of the ways in which he fell short um as a human being uh compared to to nizan so i, I guess it's that it's that um it's that immersion um in the imagination of 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 another writer that that um that i find gripping in 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 the best kind of uh, literary portraits.
1: In the introduction, you talk about, in addition to portraits, you talk about the essay form, and you even compare it to, to your early interest in jazz.
2: Not uh, early interest.
1: Oh, sorry, not early interest. Was that a late jazz interest? Is my,
2: jazz is like my lifelong interest. I'm, I'm interested in jazz more than I am in anything.
1: Okay, okay. <laughs> well, so then <within> <laughs> second to jazz, essays. I was Let's wondering if you could tell us a jazz. little bit. <laughs> Well, I was wondering if you could tell us more. <laughs> but in terms of your interest in in essays and the essay form, what was the the early appeal of that, as opposed to say novels or short stories? Why why essays? What spoke to you about essays?
2: Well, I mean, I suppose that that you know that, that you know one of the things that 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 I always liked about essays is the fact that they are you know an, I mean an essay by definition is an effort. Right. It's an attempt. It's a, it's an attempt to think through a set of issues or, or a problem. Um, it's not always, I mean, of course there are some essays which set out to be, uh, you know, definitive statements, but, um, but most essays aren't like that. They're more searching, more ruminative. They, 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 they often leave us with more questions than, uh, than answers. And I think that's what, you know, what interested me, um, about essays i was always interested in criticism too i mean i i i like debating ideas and and you know when to to, to you know to read an essay really is to enter into some kind of well a, enter into a debate into a conversation with a writer about one well, in, in some cases another work um uh that's what you know, I think also that there were certain practitioners I I found to be, you know, just enormously compelling. I, you know, Joan Didion, uh, uh, Janet Malcolm, Pauline Kale. Um, I, I fell in love with Walter Benjamin's work when I was in college. Um, essays like, uh, his um, Well, his essays on Kafka and Proust certainly, but also his great piece on the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, and and it's you know it occurs to me that often you know essays, maybe because of their provisional quality, are are more um, often more daring um, than than uh, full fledged books. Um, That they, you know, I I do think that writers often take chances in essays that they don't necessarily take elsewhere.
0: So in this. In Writers and Missionaries, again, in the introduction, Zach and I were very taken by it, as you can probably assume from so many of our questions right now. You write, And while I write extensively about their political choices, I'm just as interested in their aesthetic commitments, the sensibilities and obsessions that give their work its power, its character, and what Bartz would have called its green, without which their work would not be worth considering today. And the relationship between aesthetics and politics is something heavily debated in criticism. And I'm wondering, why do you think it's important to capture both the aesthetic and the political? And what do we lose if we prioritize or focus on only one over the other?
2: Well, for one thing, why would we read a writer who did not in some way move or unsettle or affect us um if that work could be reduced to its political utterances why, why not just read a, a summary of the person's positions i mean baldwin had a set of views um you know which are you know certainly illuminating in some ways i mean you know he was a you know he was a far-reaching you know, and I think that's one reason why people are still reading him. But I don't think he's just read for his views, you know. Um, I think he will be, and I think, and frankly, I think that a writer like Baldwin will be read, even if, you know, in the, you know, even in the unlikely event, let's say in our lifetime, that the problems he addressed are solved, you know, Um, because there is something in that writing, which, 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 touches us in a in a deeper way there's a music in that prose you know which is um ineffable um that that's what you know baldwin is his sentences um it's not just his pronouncements and and uh you know i often feel like i'm uh you know like a, a moralist among aesthetes and an aesthete among moralists I just, you know, and I I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, Susan Sontag's work is so interesting because she's constantly toggling between formalism and moralism. Um, It's obviously very important for us to understand how writers responded to the uh, political crises uh, of their time. Uh, I mean, for for a number of reasons, Um, you know, in some ways it's quite humbling. I mean, we see, you know, you see writers making what today we think of as, you know, terrible mistakes, you know, and, and I don't hesitate to, um, you know, to, to spot those. I mean, today we would say, call them out. Oh, that's the phrase I hate, um, to identify those, those, uh, those mistakes. Um, but I think it's also humbling. I mean, we are today making mistakes of our own. I'm not even saying what they are. I'm just, we don't even know what they are. We'll find out later, you know, a new generation of writers will read us and call us out, but you know. So to me, it's the it's that struggle in the dark that's interesting. You know, I mean, you know, as they say, you know, you know, we we can we think backwards, but we can only live forwards, and and even writers who are guided by a by a, a blazing and and admirable uh, political vision of you know social justice and so on, you know, like Baldwin make mistakes, make moral mistakes too. Um, so, you know, I think we, we, you know, I'm interested in their politics for both because they can potentially be, you know, a beacon as it were, but also because they're a reminder that, um, you know, making choices in what are invariably, uh, challenging times is not easy. Um, with respect to the aesthetic, um, you know, a, a writer is his or her music. And if we don't hear that music, we're not reading them.
0: Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this episode of Selected Essays. We'd like to thank Joe Coleman for editing the podcast and Meg Duffy of Hand Habits for contributing the original music. We hope you'll tune in to our next episode where we'll be talking with Leslie Jameson about Charles D'Ambrosio's essay, Documents. As always, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, send an email to at thepointmag.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, listeners.